As you do, take out your scriptures to John chapter 4. I'm sorry, John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of that text. Last week, we looked at a passage that marks what real faith looks like. Real faith we saw last week through that official, real faith believes without seeing. Authentic faith passes tests in their faith. And real faith treasures the treasure and not the clues. It treasures Christ and doesn't treasure so much the miracle. They see that the miracle points to Christ, the treasure. If the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John wants us to know what real faith looks like, what does false faith? Look like? What does false conversion look like? So, what John does is John puts an example of that right next to it, and that's our text this morning. An article by Jeremy Myers was entitled, What Are the Signs of False Conversion? He opens the article by saying this Are you ready for a short and shocking answer about the signs of false conversion? Here it is. There are none. I'm not entirely convinced of the truth of that, but I think what Jeremy is doing is he's using hyperbole to drive home a point. It's very hard to see the difference between true conversion and false conversion. Because false conversion asks is asked the same question. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 5. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now, there was in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned and had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? So, Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem during one of the great pilgrimage feasts, one of the three feasts in which all men were supposed to go to Jerusalem, which one we're not told about. And and frankly, in John's Gospel, he's not concerned about chronology here. And as he's entering Jerusalem from the north, he passes by Bethesda Pool, the Pool of Bethesda. And surrounding that pool are five colonnades, roofed colonnades. And lying under the the shade in those colonnades are, as what John tells us here, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Hundreds and hundreds of people. Kent Hughes writes about this scene. He says, what a pitiful crowd of broken humanity. It doesn't take much of an imagination, he says, to see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, and to sense the pathos of the old and young among the impotent 
suffering humanity. It had to be a horrible, horribly distressing sight, except for one thing. Jesus was there. Now please, just take a moment, if you will, and if it helps, you can close your eyes. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. But, but picture this scene. Here Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and before he enters, he sees this pool, this covered pool, and he sees hundreds and hundreds of people lying around this pool. And he hears the sound. Do you hear the sound of people moaning, that, that low moan of pain, the cries of pain, the cries for help? Do you smell it? The smell of hundreds and hundreds of people, many of whom cannot make it to the bathroom? Do you see the sight? Do you see it? The, the lame hobbling, the paralyzed lying, and the blind people who can't see that are stumbling over these bodies. Why am I asking you to visualize this so vividly? Because this is a snapshot. This is a picture of broken humanity. It's a physical representation of what it is spiritually in this world. We are spiritually blind and lame and paralyzed. Humanity is so very, very broken. And into the midst of broken humanity stands Jesus. It's really a picture of Advent, isn't it? Of what we're celebrating here. Of, the, of, of what the build-up has been going for the past several weeks. God coming to broken, smelly, lame, blind humanity. Standing in that midst... And so here's Jesus, spiritually whole and perfect and healthy, walking among broken humanity, asking one question. Do you want to get well? That's the question he asks. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's the question is being asked right now of you. Do you want to get well? Because the biblical facts are... The truth is, you're broken. You're lame. You're blind to sin and blind to the consequences of sin. Do you want to get well? That's what Jesus is asking you today. Do you want to be spiritually healed? Because that's why Jesus was born to accomplish that's why we celebrate Advent. Not so we can look at little nativity scenes that are warm and fuzzy and nice and touch our hearts. It does. But he was born for a mission. He was born on mission, on point. He was born to live under the law. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born under the law. What does that mean? That means that Jesus came to fulfill the law, to live it perfectly, to be perfectly aligned with the Heavenly Father through obedience for his whole entire life. 
Do you realize that Jesus actually enjoyed obedience? Boy, isn't that strange to our, our ears? Jesus actually enjoyed and took pleasure in living out faithfully God's decrees. And he did it perfectly. He was born to do it. He was born to bear our guilt. That's what the whole Easter build-up is all about. Standing before the shearers silently. Isaiah 53. Pilate said, Don't you realize I have the power to let you go free? Nothing. He was silent so that he would be declared guilty. He was born to die in our place. He was born to die. He was born so that he could take the penalty of our sins. The wages of sin. How you get paid for sin. How I get paid for sin. Is we die. He was born to be buried. Three days in the tomb. They took him down. He was dead. And they put him in a tomb. And his flesh began to deteriorate. And he was born, however, to rise again. That's the beauty of the Christian message. The third day again, he rose bodily, whole, physical yet spiritual. That was Jesus snapping the victory. If you've ever been around a race, the, the tape there is, is so that the first person across snaps that tape and that person runs over and the judge gives him the prize. You one And Jesus' prize was eternal life, perfection, perfect relationship with the Father. And he runs over to humanity and he offers it to humanity. Do you want to get well? That's the gospel offer. And if you're here today and you've never heard that, Jesus is speaking to you right now and saying, do you want to get well? Do you want to get healed? But the question isn't just for our non-Christian friend today. That question in verse 6 is for those of us who have placed their faith in Jesus. It's a question every believer needs to constantly be answering. Do you want to get well? Do you allow God to sculpt your life? Up on the overhead, we have a picture of Michelangelo's final work. It's called Rondinini Pieta. It's not the Pieta, but it's Rondinini Pieta. And he worked on this one for the last ten years of his life. Giorgio Vespari, the contemporary of Michelangelo, wrote that Michelangelo ended up breaking this block for his sculpture because it was full of impurities and so hard was the granite that sparks flew from the chisel. The sculpture was rescued by a servant and survives to this day. You can see it bears the marks of Michelangelo's chisel, but none of the beauty. What happened? 
Another sculptor by the name of Dominguez once summarized the dilemma and unpredictability of working with stone. He said this, Stone wants to be stone, but the artist wants it to be art. And that's the dilemma for you and me, brother and sister. That describes the Christian struggle, doesn't it? Our flesh wants to be stone. Our hearts want to be stone. Our minds don't want to be changed. But God continually puts the chisel to our lives, our hearts, our minds, doesn't he? Paul, writing to the Galatian church, says in 4.19, My dear children, in whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what God wants for each one of our lives. For Christ to be formed in you. God desires us to be healed, to be like his son. And he chips away at everything that isn't his son or like his son. That's the greatest struggle, isn't it, believers? Stone wants to be stone. Many times we resist his chipping. And the question we have to keep asking ourselves, we have to keep asking ourselves, and that this text brings to bear on our lives, dear Christian, is do you want to get well? Do you want to submit? Will you submit to God's chisel? Will you submit to the chisel of God? Will you submit to the chisel with your money? We just talked at the time of the offering of 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, somebody who is overjoyed to give, who finds great delight in giving. God will always, always put the chisel there, people. Do you submit to the chisel in your marriage? Boy, those of us who are married, that is perhaps the greatest ground for chisel work, isn't it? Do you submit to the chisel? Children. Children living with their parents. Listen to me. Do you submit to the chisel of obedience with your parents? That is perhaps the greatest way God chisels you under 18. Do you submit to the chisel in your retirement? What are you going to do for God's kingdom now that you have all this time? What are you going to do? I want to read to you John Piper preached. He said, I want to tell you what tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream, he says. Come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and the last greatest work before you give an account before your creator is, I collected seashells. That is tragedy. Do you submit to the chisel in your job? Do you allow God to use you there? Or do you put limits? I'm not going to mention them here. 
Think of the areas of your life. I can't go, I could go on and on. Think of the areas of your life where God is using or wants to use the chisel. Wants to free Christ from what stone you are. And ask yourself, do you submit to the chisel? That's why it's so hard to see the difference between a real convert and one who isn't a real convert is because we both struggle with the same thing, don't we? It looks the same. Both resist the chisel. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says, okay, go ahead, have it your way. You see, if there's humble submission, the Savior begins to emerge from your life. People begin to see Christ formed in you. However, if you resist and continue to resist, there will come a day when God will let stone be stone. So first of all, both the true convert and false convert are asked the same questions. Do you want to get well? But secondly, it's hard to see the difference because false conversion looks the same on the outside. False conversion looks practically the same on the outside. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 in the text. Jesus says, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. On February 11th, 1858, a young servant girl named Bernadette claimed to see the radiant vision of a woman in white in Lourdes, France. Over the, past, over the next five months, the lady appeared to Bernadette 17 more times. Visions the Roman Catholic Church have declared are true visions of the Virgin Mary. Miraculous cures have been reported at Lourdes ever since. And today, in a small, out-of-the-way town in France... Over six million people make the pilgrimage. Why do they go there? Many of them, many, many of them, they want to get healed. They go to Lourdes to get healed. And apparently this same superstition grew up around the pool of Bethesda. When the underground spring that fed the pool made the water stir, a superstition grew up that the first one to get in was healed. The superstition, in some way, and we're not sure how, made its way into the Bible. And many of you, in verse 4, you'll have it in your Bible. Some of your Bibles will have it at the bottom. See, what's going on is, is as archaeology finds more and older in more reliable texts of the Bible, they have come to notice that verse 4 actually is not in there. 
And so that's why in some of your versions, it's slowly being taken out. But the legend was alive and well when Jesus came to Jerusalem that day. And this man's response to Jesus' healing question was what? An excuse, right? Do you want to get well? Well, I, I just can never make it down into the pool in time. But Jesus, showing exactly who he was, God incarnate, heals this man. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. He heals him. And this man picks up his mat and walks away. Now, throughout the Gospels, many, many times when someone is healed, it is an outward show of an inward reality. It is showing that they had true faith. And so they have an outward manifestation, a healing of an inward reality, faith in Christ. That's what you'll see in a few chapters in chapter 9 of, of John. There's a blind man there that is healed and given his sight, and he proclaims, I believe it is you, Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Outward healing or change many times represents inward change, but appearances can be deceiving. I think that's one of the things that this text is trying to teach us, trying to show us. Appearances can be deceiving. In our responsive reading this morning, we read aloud about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I hope and I pray that as you say these, these readings, that you're not thinking more about being in rhythm with the congregation and thinking more about what this text is saying. Because what that text says is that false converts and true converts are going to coexist until Christ comes again. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the soils or the seeds. It's one of the most well-known of his parables. Four seeds are scattered, or seeds are scattered, and four things happen to them. One is Satan comes and, and snatches one away, doesn't even have a chance to grow. But three do, don't they? Three sprout up. And at that time when they sprout up, it looks exactly the same. It looks like these these plants are all the same. But in Jesus' masterful way of telling a story, we find out that only one is really a true convert. The worries of the world and shallow faith and pressure make the other two wither and die. Only one remains. Only one walks. Even though for a time it looks like three are walking. And the point is that many times people look on the outside as if they're Christians. Many people. They look healed. It's hard to tell the difference. It's hard to tell the difference where good works are concerned. How do you know when a work is a gospel good or just a social good you're doing? How do you know? I mean, this is, this is the, the amazing realization that John Wesley came to. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. When he came back from a Christian missionary journey to America, he came back and he sat at Aldersgate in a pew just like you and the gospel was said and the light went on. And he, he admits it himself. That's when I really became a convert. Yet he was doing good beforehand. 
It's so hard where good works are concerned. It's so hard to tell the difference where emotions are concerned. Emotions are, are highly unreliable, actually. When I was down at the weekender at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever was preaching, and beforehand we had sung a lot of hymns, and, and a very poignant hymn was, was sung, and many people wept. And he, in his sermon, which I'm sure was unscripted, he said this. He said, you might have shed a tear during one of our songs, but that is an indication of nothing. Emotions are wonderful. Emotions are a gift of a good God. But they are horrible barometers of conversion. Third, finally, it's hard to tell the difference where a moral life is concerned. R.E.M., that great Christian rock group 20 years ago, sang a song, Shiny Happy People. We look at people from the outside and we think, boy, they got it together. Look at them. They're living a moral, upright life. They sin seemingly less than I do. They're shiny. They're happy. The Pope looks really moral. There are many Mormons, I've said many, many, many times, who live a much more moral life than I do. They don't know Christ. Works, emotions, moralism, certainly, certainly, true believers should do good works. They should honor God morally, and their emotions should be touched. Don't get me wrong. But you... You have to comb through the pages of Scripture and you start to see a few more, I think, more reliable indicators of true conversion. I just want to enumerate just a few for you. First, a growing dependence on Christ. A growing desperate dependence on Christ. There's a sign in the textile mill, when your thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. A young woman, new to the job, got her thread tangled, and so she thought, I'll straighten it out myself. She tried and tried, and the situation only worsened and and backed up the plant. Finally, she called out to the foreman, and she said, I did my best. You know what the foreman said to her? No, you didn't. Your best would have been to call me right away. That shows your Christianity, that you depend on God. So desperately. And you call him right away. Secondly, a growing awareness of your sin. As I've said so, so many times back in Sunday school and here from the pulpit, look at Paul's progression. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's the least of all apostles. A pretty humble position. But then in Ephesians 3, he says, I'm the least of all of the saints. And then when he gets to 1 Timothy 1, he's the worst of all sinners. And then finally, when you get to Romans 7, what does he say? What a wretched man I am. You see his progression? Downward mobility. That's a great sign of true conversion. Third, a growing hatred of sin in your life. Do you echo the words of Paul in Romans 7? I don't do 
what I should do. And that which I hate, I do. Hate sin. Do you hate the sin in your life? God gives you the room to do that. He says, hate sin. Fourth, a growing love for others. I mean, I'm not going to go too long on this, but, you know, the great commandment he gave in John 13. If you love me, you will love each other. How we show our conversion is a growing love for the saints. Fifth, the growing humility towards others. That's the fifth sign. Philippians 3.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you have that growing in your life? Do you look at the people around you here and put yourself under them? Six, the growing disinterest with what the world has to offer. A growing disinterest with what the world has to offer. Now, I don't mean that you grow disinterested because of your age doesn't allow you to do things. I mean a Philippians 3.8 type of disinterest. We're considering everything lost compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Considering this life and the things that this life can give you garbage, he says. Is that growing Seven, a desire to proclaim Christ. Paul says in Galatians 6 that I won't boast of anything except the cross of Christ. Does, is, is telling people the gospel becoming more and more central in your life, more and more of a growing desire in your life? And finally, a growing willingness to face persecution. A growing willingness to face persecution. And that brings us to our last point. False conversion breaks under pressure. False conversion breaks under pressure. Look with me at verses 9 through the end. He offers healing, gives an excuse. Christ heals him anyway. And it says, The day on which he took, this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who was, had been healed, it, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But the man replied, uh, the man who, who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, they began to persecute him. The phrase... Be afraid, be very afraid, comes from a movie called The Fly. It was the kind of a tagline. It was the motto of that movie. If you, if you Google that phrase, you'll get 183 million results. But the trick is to be afraid of the right thing. 
What people commonly fear is not always what should be feared. Let me give you a couple examples. Are you afraid to fly? You've heard this. You have a point zero 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 one percent chance of dying in an airplane crash. On the other hand, car insurance companies tell us that the odds of dying in a car crash are one to two percent. What should you be more afraid of? Do you fear being killed by a bolt of lightning? The odds of that happening are one in 2.3 million. Do you realize you're much more likely to be struck by a meteorite? (laughs) Are you afraid of heights? It's the second most reported fear. The chance of being injured falling is one in 66,000. The chance of your identity being stolen? One in 200. How about sharks? This one's for my wife. Chances of being attacked are one in 300 million, honey. The chances of being mugged, one in 4,600. What should you be more afraid of? Many times we get those mixed up. The point is, many times we fear the wrong things in this life, just like this man. These verses tell of the fallout of this man's healing. He was confronted by the Jews because they see him carrying his mat. And this was one of the the 18 things that the, the Pharisees had identified. These are things you should not do on the Sabbath. Don't carry your mat. And according to Exodus 31, 32, Numbers 15, this was an executable offense. He could have been killed for carrying his mat. So this man's life is on the line. And look at what the man says in verse 11 when they ask him. He says, The man who made me well said, Pick up your mat and walk. The man is saying, Hey, listen, this wasn't my idea. This was this guy that told me to do this. I'm just following what he said. It sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, doesn't it? R.C. Sproul says in Genesis 3:12, the woman who put you here, who you put here, gave me this fruit and I ate. Not my fault. Instead of rejoicing and defending the glory of the one who had healed him after 38 years, he simply passes the buck, doesn't he? He later finds out who it was after Jesus reveals who it was. And what does he do? Did you, did you see that in verse 15? He didn't say, praise God, thank you, fall down. He makes a beeline for the Jews and says, I got the name for you. And by the way, this is when they decided to kill him. Jesus, that is. The point being made here is that he fears man more than God. He's afraid of what the Jews can do to him. And that's why Jesus, in verse 14, says that, you know, he comes up to him and says, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Have you ever thought about it? That's kind of out of the blue, isn't it? How do you explain that verse unless Jesus is identifying what this man is doing? 
He's throwing him under the bus. He's passing the buck. Not my fault. Get Jesus. What's worse than being a cripple for decades? Something worse will happen to you, he says. You know what's worse than that? Being a cripple for eternity. You see, the spiritual conviction that this text brings to bear on our lives is that it brings into context our memory verse. Are you memorizing it? Are you hiding it in your heart? If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life, for my sake, will save it. This man is desperately trying to save his life. And what Jesus is saying is, you're in danger of losing it for eternity. Jesus is reminding him and us that there are far worse things than being fired from a job. There are far worse things than being ostracized socially. There are far worse things than your best friend not calling you again. There are far worse things. The legend is told of a man who was brought before Alexander the Great for fleeing in the heat of battle. This cowardice was punishable by death at that time. The man stood before Alexander the Great trembling, and Alexander asked him, Why did you run? The man said, I was afraid. Alexander said, What is your name? The man replied, Alexander. To which Alexander the Great replied, Either change your name or change your behavior. And that's what this text brings clarity to when it's applied to our lives. And it will be. You will be under pressure, people. Will you stand on the side of Christ? Or should you change your name? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, apply it to our lives. Challenge us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.